through us human beings. So I'm feeling very human this morning, but he's a great God. You know, we're looking at a series at the moment called Jesus Said, Jesus Says. We're looking at the, the Gospel of John and we're looking at words that Jesus spoke and then what it meant then, what it means now. Last week, Lil was going to preach on the first of these, water turned into wine. She spoke instead of being filled with the Spirit, which is, I hope you realise a bit later, it's so significant that Lil did that, reminded us of the filling of the Spirit. But when I was to preach today on this second passage, clearing the temple, I had a look at the first one. And as I was just spending time just in that word, I felt God is going to be more glorified by going through both of those passages. And it's, going to be, it's not going to take a long time. But what I want to start by quickly summarising the temple. The temple. Why the temple was there in the first place? You see, as I say, God has a dilemma because God in all his infinite glory wants to show that glory through human beings. As he, re- as he released the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he said, I'm going to take you to the promised land. One of the ways in which he was going to teach them, one of the ways in which he was going to show his presence was there, but was by this thing called the tabernacle. A tabernacle, it's like a tent, a very mobile little building that, they, that God said, this is, this is what I want you to do. These are the, the ways in which I want you to construct this thing very specifically And my presence will come on that place. As is sort of illustrated there, the glory of God would fill this tiny little temple. As as people concentrated on God, he filled the temple. And that's what God really wants to do. It's very important that us as human beings regularly concentrate our attention on God. It's true, isn't it? There are too many distractions in life that are seeking to get between us and God. It's important we have these opportunities and that's what he's trying to do through the tabernacle. This is a way in which God says, my presence, my awesome presence will fill this place. And here's the problem though with concentration. Ideally, concentration is this, the action of strengthening a solution by removing or reducing the diluting agent. So you think about gas in a room as gas fills a room, it gets more concentrated and the oxygen's pushed out and it can form dangerous concentrations. Well, in this space called the tabernacle, you had nothing but the holy presence of God. An amazing place. There, smack bang in the middle of the desert, was this awesome, glorious presence of God. To do that, yeah, there were some very strict instructions. It was to the letter how you had to construct this place. It, was, it must be like this, must be like that. And the priests, in order to have this presence of God, very, you know, they were just having to the leather, having to, to sort of follow God's orders. But they had the presence of God. And the good side of that was that as that tabernacle moved from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, two things happened. As the presence of God was there and as they concentrated on that presence of God, They'd see victory whenever armies would come against them. As they, as they had that presence of God with them, they'd have victory over those armies and wonderful provision of all their needs, clothes that didn't wear out, bread and you know, manna, wonderful provision. It was good that they had that. So ideally this presence of God was a good thing. Unfortunately, 
the downside was this definition of the relative amount of a particular substance contained within a solution or a mixture compared to the volume of space. So you had this wonderful presence of God but unfortunately compared to the size of the world around it, it just didn't seem that they were concentrating enough. And we know that, don't we? We know in history that basically they just did what was right in their own eyes and and they somehow reduced God's action in the world to what was happening in this tabernacle, the sacrificial system. And it didn't seem that what God was doing permeated the atmosphere. It's summed up well in in 1 Samuel 15.22. They're they're just looking at, at the burnt offerings and the sacrifices that they're doing. They're just concentrating on that. And Samuel says, that's not what God delights in. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. God never created the tabernacle just so that thousands of animals could get sacrificed. That was not the point. The whole point was that we would have an opportunity to focus our attention on God and follow his ways, heed his commandments. That was the original intention. We could say that they sort of got stuck in the ritual of going to church on Sundays but it never permeated what was going on in the world around them. They just concentrated all their attention on this but it it didn't seem to make a difference. However, they got to the promised land, didn't they? They got there and as they got there and and, God was faithful and there was great prosperity, great prosperity that was unseen before. King David Great victory and and just incredible wealth that poured into Israel. And good old King David was faced with a dilemma. He knew that the tabernacle, sort of, that's the place God gets, this tent. But look at me, look at me, look how rich God's made me. Look at my, look what I get to live in. And poor God gets to live in a tent. So he thinks, I know what, I want to honour God. I'm going to build a temple worthy of his glory. And he thinks, you know, the best, the very best um, materials to build it. He thinks, I'm going to build it of the finest stone. It's going to be permanent. I'm going to make the, you know, going to line it like here with the most beautiful wood, the most beautiful Lebanese cedar. And then I'm going to cover it with 23 tonnes of gold. What a magnificent building. Just as you walk in, you can imagine the sun quarter, just this glistening, glorious place that David designs for God. And King Solomon, his son, gets the privilege of dedicating this temple to God's glory. What an honour it was. But even as he's doing that, this is about 800 BC, even as he's doing that, trying to somehow think, God, this is your house. He realises how futile. Even as he's saying it, he realises, gosh, you know, really? And he prays this, where he says this in verse 18 of 2 Chronicles 6. Will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built. So Solomon realises the futility of what he's doing. Nevertheless, he he asks God, he says, God, will you honour this? Will you honour the fact that we've got this building here? When we pray to you in this place, will you hear us? Even when we're away from the place, if we're sort of hundreds of miles away, if we even look to the temple, will you hear our prayers? That was their desire that God, no matter where we are, 
We've got your presence with us. We've got the assurance of your presence. And God says something like, well, yes, but. Even though the glorious presence of God fills the temple, God says this to them in 2 Chronicles 7, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands that I've given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them as they've been doing before this, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I've given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. There they were looking at this amazing temple, the very best the world had to offer and God says, yeah, but you know, disobey me, I can see rubble where you see beauty. And sure enough, History tells us that's what happened. 587 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes and just raises Jerusalem. They were flabbergasted to think that this glorious temple could actually be rubble as they went went into exile into Babylon. They just thought, we can't believe it, the temple is destroyed. It did their heads in to think that this marvellous creation was in rubble. Their theology was out the window. What do we do? We're in a foreign land. How can we praise the Lord in a foreign land? It was just out of their, you know, God was always in a building for them. So when they come back to Jerusalem after about 100 years, what's the one thing they want to see and the one thing they really believe will honour God? Rebuild the temple. And so we have this new temple, this Zerubbabel's temple it was called. It was sort of, I guess there were other, the stones that were sort of from the original temple, they gathered them together. But it was something that they had to sort of say the glory of God is in this place. And sure enough, they really, they thought, you know what, we're going to do it differently this time. We are going to seriously concentrate on God. We're going to make sure that we don't make the mistakes we've made in the past and so they made sure their sacrificial system was to the letter. They made sure that everything they were doing to honour God you had to do not just the stuff in the Bible in the Old Testament but added to it were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and they really felt that by doing this they'd be right with God. If we fast forward to the time of Jesus in that time since they've said, you know what, everything we do, we're going to make sure we honour God. To the time of Jesus, they've had, I think it's four empires come through their land. So I think it was the Assyrians, Babylonians, the, the Greeks and now the Romans coming in and as they come in, the poor temple gets trashed. The Romans in particular were, were just so disrespectful when it came to the temple. They just, if they wanted to go in the temple, they'd go in the temple. They, they didn't want to clean themselves. They just thought, we're, we're bigger than your temple rules. And so they just go and not only go in there and do, you know, put idols to other gods there, they'd flog the treasure too. So it was just a free for all. And these people of God are trying desperately to honour God. They don't want to make the same mistakes, but they're crying out to God, deliver us. And as we get to the time of Jesus... Now, 20 years before he was born, Herod the Great builds this temple twice the size of Solomon's original temple. And this was a place that was just the centre. 
It was like the centre of the Israelite life. It wasn't just the place where God was worshipped and you know, the people of God would gather together for regular celebrations, but it was also the place where the Sanhedrin, the, the law of the day, the legal system of the Jewish people, met there. It was also like a national library, the, the, the treasures. You can imagine in those days they didn't have computers, everything was handwritten. They had these ancient, ancient scriptures, not just the, the, their, their Old Testament, not just the Torah, but, but just all the writings. It was such a, a place where God was honoured. They felt God was honoured there, honoured there. And sure, they saw you know, people flocking there. It seemed like everything was going well. Mark 13.1, we, we read a little bit about what the disciples felt about the temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Then flabbergasted, wow, this is very glorious indeed, isn't it? Business was booming, attendance was fantastic. It was God in the building. Remember I said, it's very important, very important to God that we humans concentrate our attention to him. And that's what they felt they were doing. They felt that they were actually honouring God. It seems they felt Everything they were doing was blessed by God. We only have to read Matthew 23. Seven things Jesus says, I've got against this church. The seven woes. You know, they're, they're imposing countless rules on people. but They've neglected what's really important. Just Jesus just saying, I've got this against you and this against you. Woe to you because you're doing this to people. They're concentrating their attention on the rules but not making God accessible to people. In fact, unless you do these things, God is inaccessible. The whole point, remember, of the tabernacle was that God would be with people, he'd be accessible and it would make a difference in the world around them. He wants his presence to make a difference in the world around them. Unfortunately, this huge, untransportable temple posed a problem, didn't it? What if you couldn't get there? If you've got to go there to encounter God, what if I can't get there? What if for some reason I can't get there? This is the problem with having this temple. This is the problem that was addressed in Jesus. Now that Jesus is around, we see the glory of God filling a different temple. And in John 1, when we had looked at a couple of weeks ago, We're told that the glory of God fills Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John, who wrote this, he was there when Jesus was transformed, transfigured before him. God, you know, God and, and Moses and Elijah just, we've seen it, we've seen Jesus in all of his glory. So this is the problem, isn't it, that the glory was in Jesus, not in the temple. And because this was the case, it's no wonder there was incredible tension during Jesus' life. That as, it, as, as we look and as I sort of scrolled through the scriptures and the gospels, it seemed the most effective times of Jesus' ministry were outside the walls of a temple, outside. You know, it seems as he was able to freely go especially those who couldn't make the trip to the temple, he changed their lives, changed their circumstances. 
And it seems his most ineffective ministry was where? In the temples, in the synagogues, whenever he was there, he was questioned. He was just, you know, just slammed for what he did and he basically, it says at one point, he was just so amazed, so shocked that he couldn't do anything, couldn't perform any miracles because of this unbelief of God's people to what he was doing. There was great conflict in Jesus' life to the great stuff was happening outside the temples. And we come to the first miracle. They have no more wine. Jesus turns water into wine. John 1, this is God we're talking about and we see the very first expression of a spirit-filled Jesus turning water into wine. Seems very trivial, doesn't it? You know, talking to Graham and Robin, they were um, telling me about the bullet train in China. I think it was, what, 80 Aussies? Drinking the bar dry on the bullet train. (laughs) When the the grog's gone, the fun stops. (laughs) And look here, in this occasion, they're at a wedding and they've run out of wine. It's a a huge sort of shameful thing to happen at at a Jewish wedding. You know, the thing is, I think Jesus was caught by surprise here. Here he is, as I say, John 1, John the Baptist looks at him and said, look, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit descends on him and remains on him. Jesus is aware of this. He spent 40 days in the wilderness just being refined and as he comes back, as he comes back, he must be sort of thinking, wow, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And his mum says to him, they've run out of wine. Well, hang on, no, my time's not yet. This, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. I can imagine Jesus just sort of going, whew, well this is not what I expected. But still, when faced with his first miracle, it's something so fun, so trivial, but so joyful, isn't it? The symbolism in this is staggering. It's a wedding and they've run out of wine. In the Old Testament, the drying up of wine the, the prophets used to say when the wine was dried up, that was, that was the withholding of God's blessings. D- wine's dried up, so the blessings of God have dried up. Well, faced with this dilemma, how does he respond? As he's looking around, nearby he notices were six water jars, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. You know, Jewish people became ceremonially unclean, ceremonially defiled simply by being alive in the world. They didn't have to do anything. It was just the presence of sin in the world, defiled Jewish people they believed. And so they had these enormous jars to pour water on their hands to clean themselves and they were empty. That's so symbolic because new wine will fill this. The disciples fill it with water but Jesus changes it into new wine. This is so beautiful. What a beautiful miracle this is. They live in a sinful world. God knows that. God knows sin's there. But he knows that sin is not going to be addressed by the countless thousands of sheep that are slaughtered in the temple or by anything else happening in the temple. God will address 
the problem of sin through Jesus. Prophets like Joel and Amos, they foresaw a time where there would be an abundance of wine that would mean God's unparalleled blessings would be poured out again. New wine, Joel 3.18. On that day the mountains will flow with new wine. Abundant blessings will come on the land. The fact that new wine's in these ceremonial jars means that this old way of doing things is now redundant. And this is a time to celebrate. I love the words in verse 10. The MC calls the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till last. They bring out the best wine first and when people are a little bit sozzled, their taste buds are dulled, then it doesn't matter what they drink. Bring out the cheap stuff. Not so here. The best is brought out last and and the MC thinks it's the bridegroom doing it. It was but it was Jesus the bridegroom coming to celebrate, coming to say the wedding has commenced. It's beautiful, isn't it? But it's not just that, it's the fact that the wine is there in abundance. It says somewhere that there was something like 600 gallons of the stuff in those six jars. There's abundant wine for all. So we read in verse 11, through this miracle of the water being turned into wine, Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples put their faith in him. So what Jesus did with the wine, they just went, wow, he's the real McCoy, this is the Messiah. Which brings us to the temple. Compare that with what Jesus encounters in the temple. Why Jesus got angry. He's furious at what happens there. It's Passover. The Passover was a time of great celebration in the ceremonial history of Israel. The the freeing of millions of people, millions of God's people, freed by these marvellous acts of God. And they're reducing it to the slaughter of rams. They're concentrating on the sacrifice, not the the one who set them free. It's supposed to be a time of joy and instead it's this sombre ceremony. And it's likely that this episode of Jesus turning the tables over is the same one that happened at the end of Jesus' life. Why bring it up now? Well, we've seen you've had this amazing wedding feast and all this joyous celebration happening And then Jesus looking and saying, this is redundant now. (laughs) Go to the joy. Jesus is full of God's glory. Those songs we sing, joy to the world. The angels when Jesus was born, joy to the world. Peace on earth for all people. Jesus, we've seen that, haven't we? Three years of his ministry just bringing joy to the people of Israel and beyond. There's joy as people are set free. Jesus knows that sin's not going to be dealt with anymore in the temple by the sacrificing of thousands and thousands of animals. This burdensome, complex system they've created. Even though they're into it, even though they're just plying themselves into it, Jesus says no. The temple will be destroyed. 
the temple will be destroyed. By destroying Jesus' body, sin is dealt with. Remember how I said the temple was the place where God's presence was concentrated so that people could focus on God. As, as they looked to the temple, they focused on God. Well, as we look to Jesus now, as we look to Jesus, the temple of God, we focus on God. We encounter God. Through Jesus, God has taken away that need to sacrifice. So, in this story, John's saying that temple is redundant. Jesus coming in and clearing it is symbolic that it won't be around, they don't need it anymore. And sure enough, 40 years after this story, it was indeed raised to the ground. The sacrificial system stopped 40 years after Jesus was, was crucified and rose. So all this activity, the unblemished lambs, the, the changing all the money into temple currency, it's all void. Clear it out. You know, it's, in, it's so important that this is happening in what's called the court of the Gentiles. Back then, this is a very important fat point that you had this magnificent building and there was a court towards the back. The Gentiles could come this far and no more. Sure, if you want to sort of encounter God, you know, you can have this place. And there was a sign on a huge wall and a sign saying, do not pass this point upon fear of death. You will die, Gentiles, if you go beyond this point. And this is where they had all these tables. So even if you're a Gentile, you can't get in there because there's this hyperactivity happening, you know, the, the money being exchanged, the lambs barring, just all that sort of stuff's happening, where the Gentiles are supposed to encounter God. And I think it's so symbolic. Jesus just clears the whole lot out. says, this is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a, a, a den of thieves or you've turned it into a, a marketplace, but it's supposed to be a place of prayer. And so it's cleared out. And I think you know, what's so important here, towards the end of John 2, you know, people were very impressed with Jesus in that day. The Jewish people thought, you know what, stay with us, Jesus. We actually do want you. But Jesus is saying, you know what, it's bigger than just you Jewish people. It's bigger than just the Jewish people. It's a, a, a human problem. Jesus knows what's in every person. The Gentiles need a place to worship God now. So he's clearing out that temple and saying the Gentiles will now come. It says in, in Ephesians 2.14, as Paul's trying to convince those Gentile people they're as important to God as the Jewish people, he says this, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the Jew and the Gentile, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus himself brings everyone together before God. Jesus, in fact, calls himself the temple. But as I think about Jesus, I think he's much more than the temple. I think he's more like a tabernacle. He's mobile. In a sense, Jesus doesn't just expect us to come to him. He runs to us. He, he wants to go beyond these walls to people. So I, I believe Jesus is mobile, taking that presence of God, that glorious presence of God with him, making a difference wherever he goes. Those that can't make it to the temple, those who are so full of shame, those who feel like they're unclean or feel like they don't have any don't have the advantage of being born into a good family to be able to, to be part of the temple system anyway. Jesus goes to them 
God's no longer inaccessible with Jesus. God goes mobile. He turns up to meet people where they're at, full of the glory of God, full of grace and truth and when they encounter him, they're changed forever. So what about us? What about us? What does this mean for us? Like Jesus, the glorious presence of God lives in us, fills us. We heard that last week with Lil. Remember I said I believe Lil spoke for a purpose last week. The the presence, the awesome presence of the Holy Spirit fills our lives with temples of the Holy Spirit. Do we need to see ourselves more as tabernacles than temples? Do we need to see that the presence of God filling us sends us out rather than expects us just to come every Sunday? I think it's no accident when John later on in his Gospel talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It occurs in this context. Jesus comes to them, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus at his baptism and sending him. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus throughout that countryside. And Jesus says, The same Holy Spirit, I'm commanding you, you're sent with the same spirit. We have the Holy Spirit which is a sending spirit. I think about Isaiah 61, this passage that Jesus took for himself. Look at this sending spirit. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. The Lord's anointed me to proclaim good news, not just to those who come but to go out there, proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for prisoners. They're not going to have, we can't expect them always to come. We've got to be sent to them to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who are mourning now, provide for those who grieve in Zion, bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning. Those that are mourning can have that joy that I've been talking about, those who right now are struggling can know through Jesus the presence of the Spirit in us, we can go to them and and proclaim joy instead of mourning. Give them a garment of praise instead of of a spirit of despair. Wouldn't we want that? Wouldn't we want that for every single person living around here, living beyond here, Sydney, to the west, the whole world? Wouldn't we want that? The Spirit of God wants us to take Jesus to them. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the tabernacles sent. And God sometimes works in mysterious ways indeed, doesn't he? Sometimes he takes us by surprise when we do that. Sadly, like those first century Jews, we can get so caught up in what happens on a Sunday, what happens in the life of the church, so caught up in it. We've hardly got the strength to take the glorious presence of God into shopping centres, to our next door neighbours, to those beyond the family of God. Let them come to us. 
We focus all our energy, sometimes reducing our activity, not, not saying us, but so many churches reducing all the activity to God through traditions they've done for ages, making no difference in the world around them, concentrating on the worship rather than worshipping and obeying the one we worship who sends us. The problem is, as we do that, we make God inaccessible for those who just don't feel they ever could step foot in the door. Like Jesus, we're called to make God mobile. And as I was preparing this, Melissa and I went down to Bathurst for a bath, bath this is always a tongue twister for me, a, a Bathurst Baptist Church um, gathering. They had a revive out in, in Bathurst. And you know, it gets pretty cold there at night. It gets colder in Bathurst than here. It gets down to minus four, minus five and, and they have nice sort of, not like us, we only have had the difference of two or three degrees in winter, don't we? But they have a, a nice sort of daytime. Anyway, it reminded me of my time in Armidale, a time where having had this freedom in my own life, experiencing the freedom of being set free from things that had kept me prisoner for many decades. I was set free and I just wanted everyone to know this and, and was praying for an opportunity and, and talk about taking by surprise. One day my, my prize, Gibson Les Paul, was stolen. I, only had, I had very few things of value in the world. I had this Gibson Les Paul Jr., and it was just my prized possession. And it was stolen from me. I actually knew the guy who stole it. He was a young guy and, and, and I, I just knew it was him. But he was so ashamed. He was just a young fellow that had gotten onto drugs, gotten, you know, just was off the rails in a huge way and knew and he lived on a farm and he was at work all day. So he flogged my guitar. And anyway, it was a little while later I ran into him and he said to me, <laughs> he just could hardly look at me. And I said... He said, I'm so sorry. I said, look, it's okay, don't worry about it. I forgot about it. And I will just say that that guitar turned up later. It was bought by a Christian and it turned up later in when I used to do the combined church worship teams. It turned up as a guitar that people were worshipping God. That's not what I actually was saying. But this guy said to me, Andy, I'm so sorry. And I just said, it's okay. And without it, you know, in about two hours I'd led him to the Lord. That young fella went on to serve God all over the world with YWAM. Anyway, as I was talking to this young fellow, he was telling me, Andy, I've got mates living on the streets now in the freezing cold of winter. They're living on the streets. And we prayed about it and we used to go and, and just search them out. And it turned from that every Friday and Saturday night for about four or five years, we'd go out as a team, the Armadale Street Outreach, and we just worship God like we've been doing today. And we just say, God, here we are. And quite often we just get sent out in these streets and feel the Lord sending us right in the middle of battles. There was a large university um, contingency there. A lot of students would go into town to really party. There'd be a huge Aboriginal population that would really be against them and there'd be just fights all the time. Time after time, we'd, we'd just see God leading us to someone that was, was literally, you know, passed out in the freezing cold. Just situation after situation, God used us. It was fantastic. It just blew my mind to think that God could work through me to bring people to, you know, to, to, to just 
reach people. I remember one guy saying, why doesn't this happen in church? So I, don't, I don't know. Because it was so joyous to see the power of God out on the streets of Armidale. Anyway, eventually, as we started talking to people, convincing them, come to church, come to church. And what would happen, inevitably, you'd have these very broken people walking into the building. The people of God just didn't know how to react to these people. They, they knew these were the drunks. They knew these were the ones that beat up their kids that were coming to the Lord. And so, as they walked in, there was just a wall. And I remember, like I was today, I'd just be playing guitar and I'd see people come in. I'd wave to them but I couldn't get to them. And I'd see them walk out. I'd see, as we tried to introduce people to the church people, they just, they just couldn't do it. They just couldn't talk to these people. And my turning the tables event happened one Sunday as, as I watched this family, an Aboriginal family come in and I'd had the, you know, the, the privilege for many, many months of just talking to one of their sons that had gone astray. I'd, I'd see him out on the streets. I'd just talk to him and he'd, he'd search us out. So I just want to hang out with you guys. Anyway, it really changed his life and the family was so grateful that they came into church. It was like they were sitting in that area there and I watched the same thing happening. These people coming in, wanting to sort of explore this God who seemed to make a difference in their son's life. But as they came in, the same thing happened. Nobody talked to them. And I was just, oh, I was just furious. I'd seen it so many times that I ran and I pulled a bunch of flowers out of a pot, ran up to them and said, I'm so glad to see you. I'm so glad that you came today. Thank you for coming here. And then went out the back. Someone came and saw me. Andy, do you realise you've just given away the church's... Um, the church's plastic. I didn't even know plastic flowers existed then. I just didn't. I just did not know there was such a thing as a plastic flower. But all I was saying was, oh, it's so good to see you. And they, you know, God bless them. They, they were pretty good, I will say. They, they, you know, the ministers, particularly in Armidale, realised that we were making a difference, realised that the church wasn't ready to actually reach these really broken people. And so the, you know, the churches up there paid for us to have a place in the local government buildings. We just used to have a church. We used to just worship God and then just minister to people. You know, those people, some of them have been in ministry for, be going on 20 years now. Just seeing the glory of God filling my life, just being able to pass it on to those that are broken. That was a real surprise, that event. It started from a flogged guitar. And, you know, it's just beautiful to know that's what God can do. As I reflect on that story, I just think, you know, Melissa and I are spending time in some of the, you know, with some of the people in the community. Very broken people. People whose marriages are just, they've fallen apart. People who, you know, they're, the mum and the dad are just in conflict. The poor kids, you know, they, their lives are so miserable. And because of that, you know, sometimes you can have, can't you? You can have conflicts with these people. They don't respond well. And it's easy to sort of say, this is too hard. But we've got the glory of God filling us. As we go here, we can, like Jesus, rather than thinking the good stuff happens in the temple, the good stuff happens in the tabernacle. Us, as we go, whatever situation, looking for opportunities to bring joy 
the joy of the Lord into the lives of people who right now won't come to us. Yet I just look around and I know there are many people who go, but actually go and are longing. I know the heart of this church is to reach the community. Sometimes it starts with surprising things. Sometimes it's not straightforward. We do this, we do that. We just make the most of every opportunity, as Paul says, because the days are evil. But the presence of God, the goodness of God in us sends us to them. I want to pray right now in the name of Jesus for everybody who, feel, who just relates to that. You can think God's just allowing people to come into your mind right now. They'll never come to church. You realise if you were to ask them to come, they just would, would not, why would I want to go there? But church goes to them. Just close your eyes and bow your heads. I just ask the Lord to fill you. We prayed last week that we would... I, I, I know the whole church virtually stood up last week. Do you want to be filled with the Spirit, we said last week? Everyone stood up. Yes, I do. This week the Spirit is a sending Spirit. The Spirit wants us to go full of the glory of God to those who right now are broken, those who right now, even right now, they're, they're, they're in fog because of what they're doing in their lives, fog because of what life's doing to them. Holy Spirit, as you fill us, we just want to glorify Jesus. We just want the name of Jesus to go beyond these walls. I pray, Lord, we would look for opportunities to reach those who are just right now thinking life is hopeless. That Isaiah 61, we just want to see mourning change to gladness. We want to see mourning turn to dancing, just sorrow turn to gladness. So, Lord, give us courage to, to go where you send us. Give, us. give us insights how we can be creative like Jesus. Look, there's some stone jars. Let's turn water into wine. There ways in which we can allow you to be creative through us like you were through Jesus. And Lord, I pray for that joy, joy to the world. May that joy start in us, Lord, that we would be joyful, that people like Jesus, they were so drawn to him because he was so full of joy that, that, that you know, the people of Israel back then, they were just so sorrowful. They just didn't want to somehow be happy because they thought they'd be upsetting you. But Lord, may it be the joy of the, of the Lord in our lives, that fruit of joy that you give us, Holy Spirit, that makes a difference in our families. We lift up our families, our neighbours. We lift up those at school, at work, those that we encounter that don't know you, just in the everyday situations in life, Lord. We just pray you give us opportunities, your spirit, would be prompting us to allow this glory that fills us to overflow into their lives.